This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And this week, we've got Jason Flom. He has been in charge of three major music industry labels. He's now running Lava Records. He's also spending his time on criminal justice reform. I checked out some of the things that you've done online. You describe yourself as someone who's gone from being a drug-addicted college dropout to being leader in the criminal justice reform movement. That's quite a leap. Yeah, well, I usually start my speeches by saying this is the story of my crazy journey from wannabe Jimi Hendrix to chairman and CEO of three of the biggest record companies in the world, but more importantly, from being a drug-addicted college dropout to a pioneer in the field of criminal justice reform. So it has been a very interesting journey. Should I start with music? I mean, just as a a backdrop, I grew up, my dad was Joe Flom, who some of you probably knew. Some of you probably paid very hefty fees to Skadden, (laughs) so I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) And if he was here, he would probably thank you as well. Legendary corporate attorney. Legendary corporate attorney. Um, Amazing son of immigrants uh, who spoke no English, came to America penniless, homeless. Um, and obviously he succeeded beyond anybody's wildest expectations. I, on the other hand, um, smoked pot and grew a lot of hair and played the guitar as a kid because I didn't make the sports team, so I decided that that would be my other way to, you know, have social uh, status. So you go to mom and dad and you say, I want a career in in business. And I know you've talked about your mom graduated Cornell my mom graduated. 18? My mom graduated Cornell when she was 18, which she used to remind me of about three times a week. You know, um, as I was like, "What was that, mom?" Um, and, uh, so, and, your, and your dad's this legendary, legendary attorney, and you say, "I want to do music." Right. So I didn't want to go to college. So my dad comes to my room one day, which was exciting because I didn't even know he knew where my room was because he was always at the office. So he comes to my room one day and he says, I got a deal for you, kid. I go, what's that, dad? He says, you got a year to become a rock star, otherwise you got to go to college. I was like, great, dad. I don't even need a whole year. This is awesome, right? I can do that. He goes back and tells my mom, my mom, who had never cursed before in her life until that day, says, (laughs) if he's going to live in my house, he's got to work or go to school. So my dad, arguably the greatest negotiator of the 20th century, had to come back to my room and undo the deal he had just made with his son so wait wait can i just say kudos to the power of your mom yes yes she was uh she was the boss and uh so anyway he made some calls he called arthur lyman arthur knew uh, steve ross they got me an interview at warner communications i walked in high as a kite sat down flumped down in the chair and they said you're going to work at atlantic records they gave me a staple gun some double-sided tape a roll of led zeppelin posters and a ladder and off i went to record stores putting up posters and record stores i fell in love with the business and you loved it i loved it and you wanted to do more well, my dad told me when I was a kid, he said, he told me and my brother, he said, do whatever you want to do, try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place. He said, that's the only definition of success that matters. I've passed that on to my kids as well. And so I knew I was never going to be the best guitar player. At this point, it was clear. The new first Van Halen record just came out. I was like, this is ridiculous. I might as well try to dunk a basketball with my three-inch Jewish vertical leap. So I said, this practicing is not working for me. But I could become the best at, at this. I could discover other artists. And I thought my taste, you know, everyone thinks their taste in music is great. Face it, right. you do. You all think you know what's best. And so... But what made you think that you had something in, in it, that you could go out and find artists? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. You know, yeah, just chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, classic Jewish chutzpah. But um, I loved music, and I wanted to be a part of it. And once I knew I couldn't be a rock star, I wanted to be involved. Well, something you said, and I recommend everybody watch um, something that Jason did with the Nantucket Project. It's 28 minutes, 52 seconds, and it will make you want to do something. Um, but you said in that, you explain what luck really is. And you say it's preparation 
plus skill plus perseverance. You've got to have perseverance. Right. Well, that's my thing. And, you know, uh, everyone knows the old adage, preparation plus skill equals luck. I think it's preparation plus skill plus perseverance equals luck. Because I'm sure many of you or all of you had had that experience, too. When you had your first great idea, everyone who was supposed to know better told you you're a schmuck, you're an idiot, that doesn't make any sense, it's not going to work, right? And then you had to, like, keep knocking on the door and keep banging and, and until you finally you know, convinced whoever it was, the decision maker, that you were right or else you left and went and did it yourself or whatever it is because at the end of the day, if you don't, and, and my dad taught me that too, he taught me everything, um, you know, you have to keep banging on that door until it opens because it doesn't just open for you. So your first band, Zebra, right. was a hit. Yeah. Um, Amit Erdogan, talk to us about him because anybody who knows anything about the music industry, this guy is a legend. Yeah, Ahmed Erdogan was the founder of Atlantic Records. Right. Legendary son of Turkish uh, ambassador. Great and story. Just an amazing, erudite, incredible guy. Signed everybody from Ray Charles to the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, et cetera, et cetera. Mentor for you? Sponsor for you? What yes, was he? All of the above. I mean, uh, I, you know, he's sort of, uh, I mean, he was, a, he was just a mythical character. It was amazing. And I'll never forget the first time, I, when I finally got my job doing A&R, right, which is Artists and Repertoire, which means as a talent scout at Atlantic Records, when I first got my job, you know, 20000 bucks, they gave me a raise to 20000 bucks. I was like, this is incredible. Now I get paid to listen to music. And I remember the drummer from my high school band was at my office, and we were listening to music, smoking weed, and going, this is incredible. I get paid to listen to music, right? And there's a knock on the door at a tiny little office, and it was Ahmed's secretary. They called him secretaries back then, assistants. Sorry for the political incorrectness. So her name was Jenny Lynn. She rocks on the door. She, she pokes her head in, and now I'm freshly stoned. And she goes, Ahmed would like to see you. And I was like, you're full of and then he looks at it and goes, no, she's not. And I was like, whoa, give me some Visine. Right? I was scrambling. And it was a crazy thing. And that was the first time I actually spent time with him in his office. But he, I mean, he what was. What did he say to you? It was crazy. He had this guy in his office who looked like he was, uh, lived on the streets. And he was, he smelled bad. He was dirty. And he was pulling cigarette butts out of the ashtray and relighting them. But this guy, Ahmed had met at a club. And he had some new kind of music that Ahmed thought was cool. And he wanted my opinion on it. The whole thing was just a very trippy, surreal experience. So I figured out what happened to that guy. More music. Tw Twisted Sister. Yep. Considered a joke in the music industry. Yep. But you got them. You got them going. Oh, I love Twisted Sister. I just and bosses were like, no way. No way. Oh, they were. They were. They were considered a joke. But to me, I would go see them. There were 3,000 kids screaming, Twisted Sister, with their fists in the air. I was like, joke or no joke, these kids are telling me the answer. I don't need any more research than that, right? They all had the Twisted Sister t-shirts on and stuff like that. And so, yeah, the joke was on everyone else because that album sold six million copies. And I gave, the first, I gave the platinum album to my dad on the condition that he hang it in his office. And did And he? Of course. It hung in his office his whole career. Is there a lesson there? Again, it goes back to perseverance. Yeah. I mean, that one was, you know, really... Because you had to kind of backdoor it in yeah, I around your in. bosses. I had, to, I had to get the guy who ran our English company to sign it because my boss hated them so much. He used to throw me out of his office every day, every time I'd bring it up to him. But I was in love with it. And, you know, he finally said, if you ever mention the name Twisted Sister to me again, I'll, you'll never work another day in the music industry. I was like... But you still did it. Well, yeah, I went around him. Like I said, I got the guy in England to sign it. And then it was... It, the, the record came out like a CIA agent. Nobody worked it. Nobody talked about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Until it sold six million. Until it sold. And then, and then my boss, to his credit, turned around and said, you know what? You were right. And, and the next record, we really put the hammer down. And, and the, it was the second one that sold the six million. Yeah. Oh, okay. So why, uh, you started making more money. 
Yep. But everybody in any industry, it's not just the music industry, can deal with crazy type or difficult people or people who didn't get sleep. And, you know, what's your advice? Like, what did you do to navigate this? Because it sounds like it was often nonstop of dealing with strong personalities, really talented individuals. Um, I mean, I have a story that, that really shines a light on what it's like dealing with these pop and rock stars that you read about in the tabloids. Um, and you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and tell it. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you don't mind. <laughs> I don't so, mind. So anyway, I'm going to stand up for this. So it's a story about a guy who's in a, <laughs> he's in a hot air balloon and he's lost. So he lowers himself down until he's about 30 feet above this field. And he sees a guy standing in the field. So he yells down. He says, excuse me, I'm lost. Can you tell me where I am? The guy looks up and he goes, yeah, you're in a hot air balloon about 30 feet above this field. So the guy looks back down and he says, well, that's great, but if you don't mind me asking, are you a record executive? <laughs> the guy looks up and he goes, yeah, I am, but how'd you know that? And the guy says, well, because everything you've just told me is true, but it's of no use to anyone. <laughs> the guy looks back up and he says, well, if you don't mind me asking, are you a recording artist? <laughs> and the guy goes, yeah, I am, but how'd you know that? And he says, well, because you don't know where you are or where you're going. You're in exactly the same spot you were when we first met, but now all of a sudden it's my fault. <laughs> That's, Come on. <laughs> that's my life. That's why I'm in therapy. Well, and, join the know, crowd. Join it's the not crowd. an easy way to, to go, I'm telling you. There's easier ways to make a living. Well, Trust me. So talk a little bit about this one, because this was another thing where you persevered. Kid Rock, this was another one. Three albums didn't sell. He had a thousand haters. Oh, yeah. So, so when I discovered Kid Rock, I, I, this kid that worked for me named Andy Carp, who looked exactly like George Costanza, strangely enough, he comes to see me and he says, he hands me a CD for this kid. He goes, I, I think I should go see him. I go, okay. So he goes to Cleveland. He comes back. I said, how was he? He goes, I don't know, boss. He goes, you know, there was only 40 people at the show, but he comes out of a coffin to start the set and he's got a midget on stage cursing and rapping. I said, I think I better go see this for myself. <laughs> so I went to Detroit and this time he had 1,500 people because that's where he was from. And the show was incredible. And I ended up signing him. And, uh, you know, when the record came out, nobody, everybody hated him. Like you said, like press hated him, radio hated him, other artists hated him, MTV hated him. There was nowhere to go. And I finally broke him. You know, my dad, another thing my dad taught me was like, he said to me, son, the key to success is be, in business is being friendly. Right. And I was like, okay, well, I can, I think so I can you learned do that. Your I'm, lesson. I'm, I'm really bad at being a like, it's like laughable. So, um, but I'm good at being friendly. So, um, so I, I ended up breaking Kid Rock as a result of a golf game I had with one of the key taste makers, decision makers at MTV. Yeah. And then I convinced him on the way home. I put the record on in my in my Tahoe with the stock stereo. And in my car, I control the volume. In his office, he listens to it like a church mouse. And I played it loud, five songs, and he says to me, "This guy's going to save the world." Um, and he, the MTV ended up breaking him. And of course, when the uh, when the record went platinum, I took out this ad. In Billboard, interestingly enough, it ran directly opposite the Christian radio charts, which made me really happy. Of course. And then juxtaposition is everything. And then um, when it hit 10 million, I just moved the finger over and stuck another zero in there <laughs> and ran it again. So, you so know. this was your advice from your dad, just be friendly? Yeah, he didn't say anything about giving everybody <laughs> I didn't think the finger. So. Yeah, that was different. You know. One thing I want to ask when you go to Virgin. So I ran that, and it's interesting because it, it actually did set a tone because the company was the coldest company in the business. They hadn't had a hit since the Spice Girls. And, it, and so, you know, that really helped to set, you know, turn things around. And it was great because I'd been fired from Atlantic over a poem I wrote. And... Uh, that's a crazy story, too, but whatever. And, um, and the people at Atlantic, a lot of people at Atlantic put that poster on their walls sort of as a silent protest, so it was kind of fun. And um, Yeah, so just trying to have a little pizzazz. A little fun. It's and the so entertainment industry. Being creative. 
And I'm just curious how that impacted you as a leader and how you dealt with individuals. Um, you know, I mean, look, I want to be them. And, um, you know, so I have, I think that gives me a certain degree of empathy. And, um, you know, I want to do a good job for them, of course, because their careers are in our hands in a very real way. Um, and it, it, the music industry is like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, it's so crazy. There's, you know, up until iTunes recently, they closed iTunes, of course, two weeks ago. But up until then, there were 60 million songs on iTunes, right? So trying to get attention in a world that crowded. In fact, there's even a website called Forgotify.com. You probably haven't heard of that. Forgotify. But Forgotify, it's a real thing. Forgotify is a website that has all the songs that have never been listened to on Spotify. Not even once. <laughs> That's imagine so, that. That you is go, so harsh. Imagine that. You go make a record and not even your mom listens to it. It's so horrible. Harsh. So I like Forgotify. 16% of the songs on Spotify have never been heard by anyone. Have you found any good artists? No, but I like listening to it because it gives me, it gives me a sense of power because once you listen to it, it comes off the site by definition. And I think they should send a text message to somebody and say, schmuck, good news. <laughs> One. <laughs> One player. All right. So I said at the beginning that you have had quite a path, and I want to talk a little bit about your current chapter. I think it's been your priority since 92, 93, and that is criminal justice reform. Right, and I was lucky to come here and speak at the Bloomberg Equality Summit um, with a woman named Nora Jackson. So, um, so yeah, I'm the founding board member of the Innocence Project. Um, I've been working on criminal justice reform for 25 years. Uh, it is my, uh, my mission, my, my calling to reverse this disastrous failed social policy of mass incarceration that has taken us to a place where we've gone from 300,000 people in prison 35 years ago to 2.2 million now, not including the 4.5 million that we have on supervision, parole, and probation. And it's, it's absolutely, it's disgusting. I mean, like, you know, we, we, we lock up black people in America at six times the rate of South Africa at the height of apartheid per capita. We lock up we lock up our own people, Americans, right, at 14 times the rate per capita of Japan, and our crime rates are the same. So, you know, it, it, none of it makes any sense. And it's business, and I, I would encourage anyone here to look at your portfolio and divest from any company that's involved with private prisons or anything that profits off of human caging, because let's face it, that's what it is. And it's, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's what I want to do. And, of course, it's even worse when you're dealing with people who are actually innocent. So... Um, the Innocence Project has now exonerated uh, uh, 400 people on, with DNA, um, people who are factually innocent, 21 of whom have been sentenced to death. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a monstrous challenge, but it's something that I take extremely seriously, and it's a, it's a big part of my life every day. So I started this podcast called Wrongful Conviction to tell the stories of people who were wrongfully convicted and, and sentenced to death or life in prison or whatever else and served decades for crimes they didn't commit. Sonny Jacobs, Tony Wright, Angel Gonzalez, Dusty Turner, Nora Jackson. I listened to her story this weekend. Raymond Santana, he was one of the five wrongfully convicted Central in, in five, Central right? Park Five. Um, I had a question and I wrote to myself, why do you do it? Well, that's pretty stupid to ask because it's the right thing to do. But why has it become such a personal mission for you? It seems to be a driving life force. You've been doing it. You're still doing, you're in the music industry. You're still running your company. Yeah. But... I don't know. It's, it's, I call it selfish altruism. I mean, I do it. I think anyone who's involved, and I'm sure everyone has their own things that you do that are, that are you know, good for the world, and it makes you feel good. And if it makes you feel good, then you do more of it. It makes me feel useful. It makes me feel purposeful. Um, it, being around these most extraordinary people who have been through this unimaginable ordeal 
in the American gulag system and come out with grace and hope and kindness and optimism gives me uh, gratitude in my attitude. So it makes me want to do more. And they are the most extraordinary people. And they didn't do anything wrong. And they ended up in this horrendous, like, uh, like I said, unimaginable. There's no word to describe what they've gone through. So, um, so it makes me, so I want to tell the stories. And on the podcast, we tell the stories. And in, in so doing, we educate the public as to how these things happen. Mm-hmm. So that when anyone serves, ends up serving on a jury, they'll be more woke and they'll be able to process the information that's being given to them in that courtroom in a way that is, you know, more, uh, well, just a more, uh, um, you know, educated, whatever the word is I'm looking for, way, and, and hopefully, you know, prevent as many wrongful convictions that, uh, from happening in the future. Is there some feeling to that, I mean, you've done really well and you have a platform and you have a voice that you can maybe give a voice to somebody else? Yeah, I mean, of course. I want, and I've always wanted to help the helpless. I mean, that's something that grew up. My dad taught me that as well. And, you know, it's, it, you know, it's hard to imagine anyone who's more helpless than someone who's stuck in that hole, right? In, in, the, in somewhere in what we don't see, we don't hear, we don't know, and they're just stuck there. And nobody, you know, you throw away the key and they're forgotten about. And if they're innocent, someone needs to take their side and imagine being in their place. It's, it's uh, you know... You take, you take their side, and you also um, are now taking the side of those who don't have voices and teaching about that to kids. And I right. want to kind of talk a little bit about this. You wrote a book for kids with your daughter. Yeah, and everyone's getting one. Um, yeah, there's a so. pile outside, so make sure on your way out you grab one. It's called Lulu is a Rhinoceros. Yep. Um, and you are working on you know, teaching kids about inclusivity, individuality, tolerance. Yes, exactly. So I wrote this book after I came back from Africa where I work with an organization called Vetpaw Veterans Empowered to Protect African Wildlife who are working to save the rhinos. And I came back and I was sitting on the couch with Lulu, my bulldog, and I, I was telling her about my trip because you talk to your dog, Sue. I'm looking at you. I know you do. And, uh, were there drugs involved? No, no okay, drugs. Okay, I don't do drugs. I gave all that up in the 80s. Good. Um, so that's really true. So, uh, so this was a sober conversation. And... Uh, and I was telling her about my trip, and Lulu says to me, well, I'm a rhinoceros, too. I was like, what are you talking about? You're obviously a dog. You're furry and small, and you're on my couch. And she goes, can't you see I have short legs, a big body, a flat head? I burp and snore and fart like a rhino. I'm, I'm a, a rhino. rhino. I was like, well, if you're a rhino, let's tell the story. So I thought, if we can create a little hero for kids who feel left out, put down, or bullied because of the way they look, the way they feel, or the way they are, then let's do that. So Lulu is trans-species. She's proud of it. You know, she, it's, it's her struggle to find love and acceptance in a world where she's judged by her physical appearance instead of what's in her heart. And so it's been a wonderful thing. Actually, today, I'm happy to announce news. we just signed a deal with Scholastic. They, put it, they took 65,000 copies. They're putting it in all the schools. It's been on Ellen. Uh, Nora Jones has a so song great. about it. It's great. And, uh, Can I ask you something? Do you ever sleep? Um, yeah, not that eight hours. Mackenzie, where's Mackenzie? I need help. Um, I sleep a little once in a while, and then I do power naps. Power naps power are good. Naps. I do one in my office. What's your favorite now. app? I don't have one. I don't know. My favorite app? Yeah. Uh, Instagram? No, I don't, Forgotify. Oh, Forgotify. Okay. That'll put you to sleep. Those songs are terrible. <laughs> All right. Two last things. Oh, I do. I should put this And everyone's up. getting a book. And, everyone's uh, getting a book. I've been doing readings everywhere at schools, churches. I do it with my daughter. I wrote it with my daughter, who's a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, and it was a real thrill to write it with her. We now have an animated series in the works as well, so it's really exciting. All right. Um, <clears throat> so can I, and two, the last thing. Yeah, the last thing. Last thing? Two yeah. last things? Yeah, two last things. 
First is serious. So you've built up so many different things, music companies, artists, the Innocence Project, Wrongful Conviction. I'm just curious to our members here in the audience who are building a lot of things right now, you know, how do you keep the perseverance going when sometimes it can be difficult? Um, I don't know. I think everybody here knows as, as much about that because, I mean, you, none of these people got where they are without having to knock down a lot of obstacles, right? I mean, I don't think success is handed to anyone. Um, so unless you're an heir. Any heirs or heiresses here? I didn't, th I didn't think so. Because <laughs> no, this they're, is a they're, working they're crowd. They're on the Upper East Side, but they're not here. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're in their brownstone right now. Um, so... Um, so yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone here needs my advice on that. I can take their advice. That was Jason Flaw. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.